Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Ah, yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. In September of 48 BC, a ship anchored itself off the coast of Egypt. On board was a Roman consul, his wife, and a crew of loyal soldiers and sailors. They had arrived in Egypt with the hopes of receiving a grand welcome. Instead, they were given a much more muted reception. A single small rowboat was sent out to ferry the Roman from his large trireme to the shore. His wife was worried. This was hardly the way a consul of Rome should be greeted by a foreign government. But the consul told his wife not to fret, and even emboldened her with a quote from the Greek playwright Sophocles before he got aboard the small rowboat. He said, quote, Whatever man upon a tyrant takes his way, his slave he is, even though a free man he goes. End quote. In other words, it's important to have courage and not to be bullied. Besides, the men rowing the boat seemed to be fellow Romans. As the consul was being rowed to shore, he thought he recognized one of the boatmen and even asked, have we served together before? But all he received was stony silence in reply. Meanwhile, back on the trireme, the consul's wife watched as the small fishing boat rowed its way to shore. She noticed that a larger crowd of Egyptian soldiers were amassing on the beach. This could be a royal greeting party, but it felt somehow more sinister. When the boat hit the sands, the Roman barely had a chance to stand up before one of the soldiers in the boat drew his sword and ran the consul through. We're told that as the man fell to the ground, he managed to cover his face with his toga in a final act of dignity. All the while, his attackers continued to stab him to death. Meanwhile, his wife looked on horrified from her anchorage, powerless to stop the assassination. You see, the man who was killed that day on the beaches of Egypt was not just any Roman official. This was Pompey the Great. Now, for those of you who are ancient history buffs, Pompey barely needs an introduction. However, if you happen to be newer to the topic, then I should probably let you know that Pompey the Great was one of Rome's most celebrated generals and was easily one of the most important men of his generation. However, by September of 48 BC, Pompey's star had fallen. He had found himself embroiled in a civil war, fighting against fellow Romans commanded by none other than Julius Caesar. 
A few weeks earlier, Pompey had let victory slip through his fingers at the Battle of Pharsalus and had been dealt a decisive defeat by Caesar. He was heading to Egypt in the hopes of taking refuge in the arms of an ally, Ptolemy XIII, a.k.a. Cleopatra's little brother. Perhaps the Egyptians would keep him safe as he collected himself, raised new legions, and planned his next move. This proved to be a terrible miscalculation. You see, the young Ptolemy XIII had been convinced by his advisors that giving Pompey refuge would be a terrible idea. While Pompey was at their court, the Egyptians would essentially be his slaves, and they would make a powerful enemy in Caesar, the guy who looked like he was winning the Civil War. If Pompey was killed, on the other hand, then they wagered that Caesar would be pleased. The Civil War would be over, and Ptolemy could go on being the king of Egypt with the renewed blessing of the power brokers back in Rome. This also proved to be a terrible miscalculation. You see, Caesar was not pleased that the Egyptians had taken it upon themselves to kill Pompey the Great. Pompey and Caesar may have been at war, but once upon a time, they had been allies and even friends. Some believe that Caesar had hoped to end the Civil War by showing his famous clemency to his enemy. Caesar was known to very publicly pardon those who had wronged him. This was done partially to keep the peace and partially to humiliate the people who had crossed him. But now the Egyptian king had robbed him of this opportunity. On top of that, there was also the fact that Caesar just didn't like the idea of Egyptians thinking that they could kill Roman consuls, even if they were his enemies. So it would not be long before Caesar himself was in Egypt. We're told that when the Egyptians presented him with Pompey's head, he shed tears. This was certainly not the reaction that Ptolemy and his advisors were hoping for. Caesar also made it clear that his visit in Egypt was not going to be a short one. Clearly, there were things that needed to be sorted out in the kingdom. So in the end, the Egyptians found themselves the slave of their Roman houseguest after all. Some sources tell us that it was in this tense atmosphere that Ptolemy's advisors actively started to plot against Caesar. Caesar, perhaps rightly paranoid, took to staying up all night at elaborate drinking parties just to make sure that he was properly guarded. It was then that Cleopatra reemerged on the pages of history. Some sources tell us that Caesar sent for her. Other sources insist her arrival in Alexandria was entirely her own doing. Plutarch tells us that one night Cleopatra had her servant Apollodorus wrap her up in a sleeping mat and smuggle her into the palace where Caesar was staying. 
When the servant was admitted to see Caesar, he unraveled the mat and out tumbled the beautiful young Cleopatra. Now, in some versions of this story, the sleeping mat becomes a rug and artists from then on in have been painting Cleopatra tumbling out of a rug. But the original Plutarch says sleeping mat. If this story is to be believed, she dramatically threw herself at the feet of the Roman. And before the night was over, she had seduced him. Cleopatra convinced her new Roman paramour to stay in Egypt, intervene on her behalf, take her out of exile, and place her back on the throne where she belonged. Now, Cleopatra dramatically tumbling out of the bedroll is perhaps one of the most famous scenes from antiquity. It's such a great story, we have to ask, did it really happen? Well, here's the thing. It only appears in one source. Now, a number of different sources all agree that Cleopatra was snuck into the palace to meet Caesar, but only one adds the spicy detail of her being rolled up and then provocatively unrolled at the general's feet. That one source is our old friend, the historian Plutarch. Now, as far as ancient historians go, Plutarch is largely considered to be pretty reliable. But he was kind of a sucker for a real good story. Plutarch's histories are filled with dramatic flourishes that you don't find in the other sources. It certainly makes for better reading, but it's also tricky when you're trying to avoid historical myths. Now, it's highly possible that the story of the bedroll was entirely true, but because it doesn't appear in any other source, we shouldn't rule out the possibility that Plutarch made the whole thing up. This is the challenge when exploring the lives of ancient people, especially ancient women. The sources are inconsistent, and often the best stories are the most poorly sourced. At this moment in history, Cleopatra was about to become a key player in the politics of the Mediterranean world. However, evaluating the scope of her influence can be tricky. If we were to believe the most unfavorable sources, then it seems like she had nearly magical powers of sexual manipulation. She was able to bewitch powerful men and make them do her bidding. But how much of this is based in fact, and how much is just negative propaganda? Was she really able to derail the plans of the ancient world's most formidable people with her feminine wiles? Or has a capable and intelligent woman been unfairly slandered by the sources? Let's find out today on Our Fake History. One, two, three, four! 
episode number 63, What Should We Believe About Cleopatra, part two. Hello and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major and this is the podcast where we explore historical myths and try and determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. This week, we are continuing our examination of one of the ancient world's most celebrated and vilified women. Now, this is part two of what is going to be a three-part series on the Egyptian queen. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have another trilogy on our hands. So, If you've not heard the first part of this series, you may want to go back and give that a listen now. Back in part one, I did my best to give some context about who Cleopatra was. We looked at her family, the Ptolemies, and explored how they surrounded themselves in mythology in order to legitimize their dynasty. We explored how Cleopatra's ancestors were actually... Macedonian, or if you like, Macedonian Greeks. Now, okay, pronunciation note here. I know a lot of you were upset about the whole Macedonian thing. Turns out there's two ways to pronounce that word. One with the hard C-K sound and another with a soft C-K sound. Uh, There's a lot of different opinions on which one is actually accurate. I had been convinced that Macedonian was the way to go, so I wasn't just misspeaking. I made a conscious choice on that one. So Macedonian, Macedonian, potato, potato. Anyway, the important thing to remember is that Cleopatra, even though she's often completely associated with all things Egyptian, was actually descended from the Greek ancestors of Alexander the Great. We also took some time in the last episode to explore different thoughts on Cleopatra's legendary beauty. Now, I feel like every person or event that we explore in this show can always be described as quote-unquote tricky. I use that term all the time. It's tricky. In fact, I specifically choose these topics because there's some sort of legend or misconception or a historical controversy at play. I seek out that which is tricky. As you know, I'm here to sniff out the fake history. But one thing that's unique about this topic is that when you're reading about Cleopatra, you start to notice that she rarely gets to be the star of her own story. You see, the times in which she lived were incredibly complex. Historians trying to explain the life of Cleopatra inevitably end up having to explain the twists and turns of the Roman civil wars in which she was a player. Podcasters have also fallen into this trap. Famously, Dan Carlin, the godfather of history podcasters, tried to create a series of shows on Cleopatra and instead ended up creating a massive epic on the decline of the Roman Republic, in which Cleopatra only appeared in the final episode. Even popular histories on the Egyptian queen seem to have the same issue. 
One of the books I've been reading for research has been Diana Preston's history, Cleopatra and Antony. In her introduction, Preston goes out of her way to explain that she purposefully flipped the order of Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra for her title to better reflect the focus of the book. But even then, the book is largely about the ins and outs of Roman politics in the late Republic. Cleopatra can therefore feel like a peripheral player in what was supposed to be her story. Now, I know that it's quite possible that I might fall into this trap as well. In this episode, I'm going to be talking a lot about Julius Caesar and other Romans. I mean, check out my introduction. I had to give you an overview of who Pompey was real quick. Caesar poses a particularly difficult challenge because he's so fascinating. His life and exploits could easily fill hours of a podcast. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there's a Life of Caesar podcast out there somewhere. So I'm going to try and avoid the temptation to get stuck in what I like to call a context rabbit hole. That means I'm going to try and keep the focus on Cleopatra and the myths about her life. So what that means is that I'm going to have to deal with some other fascinating chapters of history using broader strokes. So just prepare yourself for that. If you came to this expecting a beat-by-beat explanation of the end of the Roman Republic, I'm not going to be able to give that to you today. So you may have to go elsewhere for that. But... With that said, to get a sense of who Cleopatra was as a human being, we do need to get a sense of her times. With the appearance of Caesar in Alexandria, Cleopatra's life was about to change forever. So let's take a closer look at their relationship and the conflict known as the Alexandrian War. Let's go. Right from the very moment that Caesar arrived in Alexandria, he did his best to exude an aura of authority over the Egyptians. He had entered the city wearing the robes of a Roman consul. He had a massive procession laid out before him where servants carried his official emblems of office. He made a show of the fact that he was important and the king of Egypt answered to him. Not only did this humiliate the teenage king, it also greatly annoyed the always riot-prone people of Alexandria. As I mentioned in the last episode, the Alexandrian mob was quick to rise up. 
If one thing upset them more than anything else, it was an insult to Egyptian pride. A Roman showing up and lording himself over the Egyptians was their number one pet peeve. Now, the teenage king and his advisors knew this. When word reached them that Cleopatra had smuggled herself into the palace and spent the night with Caesar, they made a plan. Remember, at this moment, Cleopatra had been ousted from power by a cabal of advisors that surrounded her brother-slash-husband, Ptolemy XIII. Up until a few days previous, she had been in exile and had actively been plotting a rebellion against her brother. But now she was back. She was inside the palace. She was protected. And Caesar was planning on having her reinstalled as the co-ruler of Egypt. If we believe the sources, all of this was decided over the course of one passion-filled night. So, sensing a coup... Ptolemy XIII made his play. The young kid dramatically ran out into the streets of his capital and started screaming. He pulled his royal diadem off his head and yelled to the people of Alexandria that the Roman, Caesar, was plotting to overthrow their rightful king. The ploy worked, and the people of Alexandria duly started a riot. But Caesar was not so easily outmaneuvered. He went before the rioting crowd and managed to calm them by insisting that he was only in Egypt to act as the executor of the old king's will. That was Cleopatra and Ptolemy's father, Ptolemy XII, who basically owed his throne to Rome. Now, Ptolemy XII's will had explicitly stated that Cleopatra and her brother were supposed to rule as co-monarchs. Caesar was just there to make sure that those wishes were honored, or at least that's what he told the crowd. He wasn't there to depose the king. On the contrary, he was there to ensure that Egyptian law was followed to the T. This clever speech managed to calm the crowd in the interim, but this would prove just to be the beginning. Caesar managed to get his hands on Ptolemy XIII and put him under house arrest. However, Ptolemy's advisors had already dispatched generals to raise troops and have them march on the capital. Before long, the troops had arrived and Caesar and Cleopatra were essentially besieged within the royal palace. The Battle of Alexandria had begun. Now, before we get lost in the details of this conflict, let's turn our focus back to Cleopatra. Caesar's decision to stay in Egypt and get caught up in this local dynastic dispute has often been explained as the result of Cleopatra's seductive powers. Remember, before Caesar came to Egypt, he had just defeated Pompey in a decisive battle and had basically won the civil war. You would think that after that, he would want to return to Rome, shore up his power, 
and reap the spoils of his victory. But instead, here he is in Egypt, risking his life in a fight that many would argue was not his. Plutarch says this about his motives, quote, He damaged his reputation and risked his life needlessly for no real reason, and it was just that he was so passionately in love with Cleopatra, end quote. The poet Lucan goes a step further and suggests that while Caesar and Cleopatra were held up in the palace, Cleopatra created this euphoric, dreamlike, bewitching atmosphere. He writes, quote, Cleopatra, amid great tumult, displayed her luxuries, not as yet transferred to the Roman race. The palace itself was the equal to a temple, which hardly a more corrupt age could build, and the roofs adorned with fretted ceilings displayed riches and solid gold concealed the rafters, ivory covers the halls, and backs of Indian tortoises fastened by the hand are placed upon the doors, dotted in their spots with plenteous emeralds. Gems shine upon the couches, and the furniture is yellow with jasper. End quote. <laughs> he then went on to describe Cleopatra herself, saying, quote, Having immoderately painted up her fatal beauty, upon her neck and hair, Cleopatra wears treasures and breathes deep in her ornaments. Her pale breasts glisten through Sibidonian fabric, in which the needle of a workman of the Nile has separated and loosened the wrap by stretching out the web. End quote. Now, there's a seductive scene, if I've ever heard one. If we were to believe the poet, because of Cleopatra, quote, Caesar learnt how to waste the wealth of the despoiled world. End quote. Now, this is where we need to take a step back and consider what's going on here. It's clear that the ancient Roman authors were totally confused and perplexed by Caesar's involvement in this Egyptian civil war. I mean, Plutarch is clearly bewildered by the fact that he lingered in Egypt at all, and he blames the entire adventure on Cleopatra. Lucan's writings make it sound like Caesar was practically drugged by Cleopatra's beauty and decadent living. But I think we should be suspicious of these explanations. Firstly, they lean too hard on the stereotype of mystical Eastern women. I mean, there's no doubt that Cleopatra lived lavishly and was not above impressing her guests with opulence. But Caesar was one of the most calculating political strategists, maybe in all of history, he was no stranger to extravagance and lavish living. The idea that Caesar risked everything in Egypt simply because he was impressed by fancy parties and was falling in love, I don't know, it just seems a touch naive. It just doesn't fit with everything else we know about Caesar. You see, there were very practical reasons for Caesar to be involved in this civil war. 
First, there were economic reasons. The House of Ptolemy owed huge amounts of money to Rome. Now, despite his many victories, Caesar was perpetually strapped for cash. Now that the Civil War was winding down, there were veterans to pay. Basically, Caesar needed cash, and it was time to collect from the Ptolemies. He needed someone on the throne of Egypt that he could rely on to pay up. Secondly, Egypt was also a key supplier of food for the empire. Most of the grain that was eaten in Rome came from either Egypt or Sicily. Sicily was yet another hot spot in the ongoing Roman Civil War, which meant that the supply of grain could potentially be disrupted at any time. A stable Egypt meant a stable supply of food. But aside from that, Caesar seems to have gotten involved in the Egyptian civil war partially because it was on him before he knew it. Remember, he had gone to Egypt to chase Pompey. When he got there, he learned Pompey was dead and Ptolemy XIII was to blame. He clearly wanted to take the young Ptolemy down a few pegs and remind him who the real power in the Mediterranean was. He meets Cleopatra And then literally the next day, Ptolemy is out in the streets inciting a riot. In other words, things moved quickly. Caesar was part of the Egyptian civil war, whether he liked it or not. So it seems disingenuous to claim that the entire Egyptian campaign happened because Cleopatra had managed to seduce Caesar. It suggests that Caesar could have easily chosen to leave Egypt, but did not because he was in some sort of blissed-out haze conjured by the Egyptian queen. He was being besieged by Ptolemy's advisors before he had a chance to make a move. If anything, it was their paranoia that roped Caesar into the war, not Cleopatra's sexual manipulation. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not to say that Cleopatra wasn't a factor. I mean, obviously she helped tip Caesar in a particular direction. It's not like their relationship doesn't matter at all. I mean, Cleopatra and Caesar definitely were lovers, and no doubt she was advocating hard for her position. And certainly, having a replacement waiting in the wings was essential in any palace coup. But I think we should be skeptical of stories that Caesar was somehow bewitched. At best, this is an oversimplification, and at worst, it plays into destructive myths about the Egyptian queen. Now... The war for Alexandria would end up stretching on for a number of months. In the course of the conflict, Cleopatra's younger sister, Arsinoe, would actually end up making a play for power. Ptolemy loyalists would claim that she should be the true sister-wife of Ptolemy because Cleopatra was a traitor who had sided with the Romans. The Egyptian forces rallied around Arsinoe as their young king remained under house arrest in the royal palace. Now, 
Eventually, Caesar was able to break the siege in a particularly daring naval battle. During a moment of peace that came after that, Caesar agreed to release Ptolemy XIII from the palace. But this completely backfired because the young king immediately started planning a new attack on Caesar with his advisors. Despite being hugely outnumbered, Caesar was able to hold his ground in Alexandria until reinforcements were able to arrive from a number of the Roman provinces. Once they were there, a final pitched battle known to history as the Battle of the Nile took place outside of Alexandria. In the end, Caesar and his Roman forces were victorious. Cleopatra's brother, the young Ptolemy XIII, was said to have dressed for the battle wearing splendid golden armor. This armor would eventually be his undoing. We're told that in the course of the battle, the barge that was carrying him sank and his beautiful golden armor dragged him to the bottom of the river. Now, once again, this is a story that perhaps is a little too good to be true. Just a little too poetic. Boy King killed by his own decadence. Still, that's what the sources say, and it's it's too good a story not to let you know about it. By late 47 BC, Ptolemy XIII was dead. Cleopatra's little sister Arsinoe was in captivity, awaiting to be displayed in one of Caesar's military triumphs. And Cleopatra was once again the undisputed ruler of Egypt. Of course, the Ptolemies being the Ptolemies, Cleopatra was engaged to her other younger brother, who took the name Ptolemy XIV, just to make sure everything looked legitimate. The whole idea was that Cleopatra and her younger brother would rule as co-monarchs. But nominal marriage aside, there was now no doubting where the true power in Egypt resided. But perhaps most significantly of all, Cleopatra was pregnant. And I'll give you one guess about who the father was. Cleopatra gave birth to a healthy baby boy in June of 47 BC. Now, to make it absolutely clear to everyone who the father was, she named her son Caesarion, or more officially, Pharaoh Caesar. The significance of this child was certainly not lost on Cleopatra, Caesarion was not only a potent reminder to Cleopatra's subjects of her close connection to the power of Rome, 
But the child also represented the possibility of a great future dynasty linking East and West. Caesarian was a living symbol of all Cleopatra's power and ambitions. As such, she was quite fond of showing him off and proudly and publicly trumpeting who his noble father was. But here's the thing. Cleopatra's very public exaltation of her son has led some to question whether or not Caesar was actually his father. There were some contemporaries and also a handful of historians who think that Caesar may have been infertile. Over the course of his entire life, Caesar only ever managed to sire one legitimate child, his beloved daughter, Julia. Now, this was a man who had a number of wives, countless mistresses, and a seemingly never-ending parade of prostitutes in his life. But despite that, there were surprisingly few rumors of illegitimate children. The one notable exception being the rumor that one of his future assassins, Brutus, had actually been one of his love children. But beyond that, no kids. This has led to speculation that Caesar was perhaps not the true father of Caesarian because he just couldn't make babies. The theory goes that Cleopatra may have ensured that she became pregnant in the months that she was with Caesar by pairing up with slaves and other willing and virile men. The HBO show Rome actually helped perpetuate this rumor in recent years. In that show, the young Cleopatra enlists the help of one of our heroes, Titus Pullo. He's one of the impossibly lucky Roman legionaries at the heart of the show to help her conceive just at the right time. Now, is there any truth to this? Obviously, there is no way to know for certain, but most historians seem confident that this was Caesar's child. Tales of Cleopatra's promiscuity play into the myth about her. Despite unflattering descriptions of her as a sexually lascivious vamp, there isn't any evidence that she was ever with anyone except for Caesar, and then later, Mark Antony. In other words, there's only evidence that she ever had two sexual partners in her entire life. Not exactly promiscuous. Secondly, historians have also pointed out that it was highly unlikely that an aristocratic woman, especially Cleopatra, would have sex with anyone she considered under her station. It would be highly unusual for a Ptolemaic princess to go to bed with anyone who could be considered common, let alone a slave. Remember, these were people who were obsessed with bloodlines. So, while it is possible that Cleopatra was lying about Caesarian's parentage, there's really no evidence to support it. Now, another common tale that's told about Caesar and Cleopatra is that after the Alexandrian War was won, 
the two went on an elaborate pleasure cruise down the Nile. For a long time, this story was taken for granted. It was cited as evidence of Cleopatra's unnatural influence over Caesar. Right at the moment when Caesar should be packing up and heading back to Rome, solidifying his only recently won power, here he is taking a romantic cruise down the Nile. It's yet another example of poor judgment by a man thoroughly under Cleopatra's spell. The stories of the Nile expedition are, of course, filled with descriptions of extravagance and wasteful indulgence. But here's the thing. Many historians, like Cleopatra biographer Dwayne Roller, think that this trip might just be a romantic legend. Most contemporary sources, and even most ancient historians, don't mention this trip down the Nile. It notably does not appear in accounts by writers like Strabo, Velius, and our old pal Plutarch. The trip down the Nile is mentioned very briefly by the poet Lucan, but as we keep on pointing out, Lucan may be the most anti-Cleopatra source in the bunch. A detailed account of the trip is provided only in a much later history written by the famous Roman historian Suetonius. But it's unclear if he was working from legitimate documents or if he was just elaborating on Lucan. Nonetheless, there's a good chance that the elaborate honeymoon on the Nile might just be a historical myth. It's just another colorful anecdote that helps create the image of Cleopatra as the seductive mother of bad ideas. Nevertheless, whether they went on a cruise or not, it seems clear that Caesar lingered in Egypt for several months after his victory over Ptolemy. But even after leaving Egypt, it would be many months before he returned to Rome. He would end up winning a swift victory over a rebellious kingdom in the Middle East and would famously proclaim, Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Even after that adventure, he still did not return to the Eternal City. Instead, he headed to Africa, where he scored a victory over his fellow Romans, commanded by Cato, a staunch Republican and one of his fiercest opponents in the Senate. This was perhaps one of the final chapters in the ongoing civil war. But after all of that, Caesar finally returned to Rome in 46 BC. And before the year was out, he sent for Cleopatra to come and join him there. Now, Obviously, we could easily get lost explaining the ins and outs of Roman politics at this moment. This was, after all, a crucial time in the history of Rome. Caesar's victory in the Civil War had meant that he was now the undisputed master of Rome. Some date 46 BC as the year when the Roman Republic officially died. Over the next two years, Caesar would celebrate four massive military triumphs, 
These were the elaborate military parades awarded to victorious Roman generals. He would pass sweeping political reforms. He would create a brand new calendar for Rome. And most notably, he would have the Senate declare him dictator for life. Caesar's impact simply cannot be overstated. But the question for this podcast is how did Cleopatra fit into all of this? Well, after Cleopatra's arrival in Rome in 46 BC, her very presence in the city was a minor scandal. Caesar was, after all, still a married man. Having your mistress very publicly living in one of your villas, receiving guests, and telling everyone that you were the father of her child, well, that was considered bad form even by the ancient Romans. Now, let's be real here for a second. It's not like Caesar's aristocratic contemporaries were somehow paragons of virtue. Extramarital affairs were so common that men were sometimes even made fun of when they were overly faithful to their wives. Pompey the Great was famously teased for being so sappily in love with his wife, who also happened to be Caesar's daughter, Julia. Nevertheless, your affairs were still supposed to be kept kind of secret, and your wife was not supposed to be publicly embarrassed. Having Cleopatra in Rome sent a message that Caesar thought that he was basically above the conventions of typical Roman morality. Now, notably, Caesar never divorced his wife, Calpurnia, and never publicly recognized his relationship with Cleopatra and his paternity of Caesarion. However, their relationship was hardly a secret. The fact that Cleopatra was an Eastern queen who claimed to be the living embodiment of a goddess was also off-putting to the Romans. Those in the Senate who worried that Caesar was trying to turn himself into a king saw Cleopatra as evidence of this. Perhaps not only had Caesar been seduced by the queen, but he had also been seduced by the Egyptian style of government. Perhaps he liked the idea of being a god king, or at least so speculated his enemies in the Senate. These suspicions were only stoked after Caesar completed construction on the new Temple of Venus. Caesar had vowed to raise a temple to the goddess Venus after he had been granted victory over Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus. The Julian clan also claimed descent from the noble goddess. But what made this new structure controversial was that rather close to the image of the goddess Venus herself, a second statue was erected. It was made of gilded bronze, and it depicted, you guessed it, Cleopatra. Some experts have even suggested that the statue may have also included an image of the child Caesarion. Now, in Rome, 
This was a big deal. It may have been extremely common in Ptolemaic Egypt to put images of royalty up beside the gods, but in Rome, this just wasn't done. This image of Cleopatra was, as far as we know, the first ever image of a living human to be placed in a Roman holy place. Now, imagine this, you're a pious Roman who believes that human images have no place in the houses of the gods, and then a human image is built in a temple, and that human isn't even a Roman. It's a foreign queen. Now, if you are already paranoid that Caesar was going to make himself a king, this move was particularly provocative. He's saying that you should worship this woman like a god. And by extension, perhaps you should worship Caesar like a god. This decision to place an image of Cleopatra in the Temple of Venus does seem to speak to a level of hubris on Caesar's part. It was a bold move and one that was bound to upset people. But it was also one that he thought he could get away with. Now, if you were trying to make the case that Caesar was completely in the thrall of Cleopatra, then this decision to put this statue up in the Temple of Venus kind of helps your case. I mean, it seems preposterous. Even though he didn't leave his wife for Cleopatra, he basically deified her. I mean, to me, that suggests that his affection for her was real. At the time, many Romans believed that Caesar had designs on marrying Cleopatra and ruling over Rome and Egypt as a living god. Now, it's impossible for us to know exactly what Caesar's ultimate goals were, but his exaltation of Cleopatra, as well of dozens of other provocative gestures, eventually motivated a small cabal of disaffected senators to act. Now, volumes have been written about the assassination of Julius Caesar. Everything from the hatching of the plot to the prophecy to beware the Ides of March to Caesar's wife's premonition that he shouldn't head to the theater of Pompey on the given day have all been explored in detail in countless other places. Perhaps there will come a day when I will return to the topic of Caesar and I will give him the proper our fake history treatment. But for now, let it suffice to say that Caesar's increasingly bold moves to concentrate power into his hands eventually led to his downfall. On March 15th, the Ides of March, 44 BC, Caesar was surrounded by a group of senators while entering the building that was serving as the Senate House for the day. There, he was stabbed repeatedly until he died. Now, what would this have meant to Cleopatra? Well, firstly, it meant that Rome was no longer a safe place for her. Her protector, benefactor, 
and the guarantor of her power back in Egypt was gone. Also, she may have just lost the love of her life. Depending on who you believe, Cleopatra may have been on the precipice of reigning over the entire Mediterranean with Caesar, but now her hopes were dashed. Despite the imminent danger Cleopatra faced in the city, she chose to linger in Rome for a number of weeks after the assassination, until Caesar's will was read. Some have speculated that there must have been a part of her that hoped that in his will, Caesar had finally recognized their son Caesarion as his heir. But sadly, she would be disappointed. Caesar had left nothing in his will for the Egyptian queen and her young son. There was not a single mention of Caesarion. Instead, Caesar had named an obscure grandnephew of his, a teenager named Octavian, to be his sole heir. The young man didn't even live in Rome, but now he was on his way and he was eager to claim his inheritance. According to the will, he was the son of Caesar, and he would abide no others who claimed the title. With Octavian on his way, it was time for Cleopatra to get the hell out of Dodge. Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. Join us again, please, in two weeks' time when we will finish our examination of Cleopatra. Before we go this week, I want to give a very special shout-out to the following people. I'd like to give it up for Rob Hamilton, Ryan Diodato, Tyler Livingston, Tanguy de Saint-Hilaire, Thomas Scheinbin, Matt D'Amato, Madeline Hempstead, Jesse Bersiaja, Home, thanks Home, Alex Hamilton, Peter Mulroy, John Fitzgerald, Hannah Worth, and Matthew J. Carroll. All of you people have chosen to pledge at the $5 or more amount on Patreon. So you know what that means. You're beautiful human beings. You're so wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I know all jokes aside, I really, really am grateful for everyone who is giving some of their hard earned cash to this podcast. I am, I'm honored by your support and I really hope that you enjoy all the extras that you get from Patreon. Uh, we are closing in on the next Patreon goal, and as soon as we hit it, we will get a chance to vote on what you want the next extra episode to be. So uh, it's never been a better time to join up on Patreon. Uh, thank you to everyone that's supporting at the $1, the $3, and the $5 levels. Thank you to everyone who makes one-off donations at OurFakeHistory.com. Thanks to everyone who buys the extra episodes, which you can also find at OurFakeHistory.com. Um, just thanks, everyone, for your support. I, uh, 
I really do appreciate it. I, I can't say that enough. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always send me an email at ourfakehistory at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at ourfakehistory, uh, or you can join the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com slash ourfakehistory. Check out all the stuff I'm posting there. It's also a great way to get a hold of me if you want to talk. Um, I'm getting more messages than I've ever gotten. And so, uh, I, I'm not as speedy with my replies as I once was. So, um, I, I, uh, if I, if I don't get right back to you, don't be afraid to shoot me another one. Um, uh, I really do try to respond to everybody cause, uh, um, you guys are important. You guys are important to me and I love hearing from, from you. So, uh, please don't be shy. If I'm not back to you right away, just send me another message. It's all good. As always, the theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. You can check out Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. And all the other music you heard on the show today was written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major. And remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. Two, three.